Growing grace is our vision for greater stewardship of people and property. In order to urge you forward in your stewardship, we've challenged you to commit to joining the church, to pray for the church, to give to the church, to serve the church, last week to know and do what the Bible says, and today the challenge for us is to commit to sharing the gospel. Many texts could be used to instruct us regarding reaching out with the good news. Even last night, our teens studied God's plan for misfits. So we looked through the Old and New Testaments about those that were considered misfits, including Christ himself, and analyzed how the gospel itself can be presented in the language of fitting or not fitting. As sinners, we don't fit in with God because of our sin and his holiness. And yet God, through Christ, makes a way for us to fit. We'll sing that in the Christmas season in that simple song, Away in a Manger. The prayer in that song is, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. But for today, our task is to see what Luke 10 says about evangelism, about sharing the good news. You heard the text earlier. It began in verse 1. We could summarize this way. Verse 1, Jesus sent. And at the end of the story, verse 17, they returned with joy. I want us to wrestle with this bookend presentation of of Luke chapter 10. Jesus sent them. And we will see that's to share the good news. And they returned with joy. I want us to maybe get over the hump of thinking that sharing the gospel is always this stark obedience. I hate doing it because I'm terrified, but I have to do it or I'll feel guilty. When the reality is it's supposed to be motivated by joy and there's a reward of joy. They were sent out. And it wasn't always easy, lambs before wolves. But having done this thing called evangelism, which sounds pretty technical, so let's just say having having shared the good news about Jesus, they come back to recount the stories and, and they're filled with joy. Now their first thought of joy we saw there was that they had power over the evil spirits. And Jesus is going to steer them to even a more foundational joy, that they belong to God, that the gospel that they were announcing has already demonstrated its power in their own lives. They're not just signing up for a job and the job is here, go sell this product. They're the living testimonial. They're saying, I've done this. I've tried this. It works. Let me tell you about it. There's joy in sharing the good news, the motivation of joy and the awaiting reward of joy. Perhaps today you need the motivation. You need to know that there's joy that comes in your eternal security, your name written in the book, foundational joy that should spill over into your evangelism. And know that when you share the good news, 
regardless of the response, there is joy in exercising yourself within the power of the gospel. So how does our text unfold this joy? That's really the seven points you have. We're just going to look through the text and see what does it really mean that they came back together and were joyful about this commission that they had. So let's find definitions for this joy so that we know they weren't just all kind of getting together and slapping each other on the back and having a good time. This was, this was real, essential joy that came out of this experience of sharing the gospel. How does our text unfold the joy? First, there is the joy of my kingdom purpose. In verses 1 to 3, we hear the language of commission. In other words, we have our marching orders. We've got, oh, I don't know, four, five, six guys at least that I know of that have spent some time in the military. And you get your orders. They're sending you overseas or they're sending you to the East Coast or back to California to a base there. You get your orders and you know exactly what you're supposed to do, when to show up and what you're going to be doing. Well, in our text, the Bible is telling us first, the Lord appointed 72 and it says he sent them ahead of him. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful. Verse 3, go, behold, I am sending you. So plenty of commission, appointment, send, go, send. The sending, we understand, it's the same word that we use as apostle. In the verb form, it means a sent one. That word appointed is kind of unique. It means to set out there on display. In other words, he's saying, the gospel has gripped your heart. All I need to do is set you out there. And let that gospel be seen. It's the Sermon on the Mount. A city set on a hill is going to be seen. And this word appointed is that same idea. I just have to set you out there. And and it'll be seen by your good works, by your testimony. People will hear about Christ. So the Lord appointed, he sent, he said, go, I am sending you. So do you have a sense, leaving this service, that you are sent, appointed, commissioned? You have your marching orders. For some of you, you're being sent to Lenexa tomorrow for the workplace. And in the darkness of that job that you work, you're the light, appointed, sent. And Jesus says, go, I'm sending you. I'm sending you to the city you live in, Jesus says. I'm sending you to your school or co-op. I'm sending you to your local Walmart where you might encounter in, in, in a casual way somebody who needs good news just like Jesus met the woman at the well. I'm sending you to your neighborhood, to some of those people you haven't met yet. I'm sending you to your family reunion. I'm sending you to that recreational league you signed your kid up for. Do we have a sense that all of our coming and going 
is backed by the providential voice of the Lord saying, go, I'm sending you. There's a reason you're still here on this earth. And it's to make his name great. The joy of my kingdom purpose. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, obviously, we're supposed to be doing our role as a citizen, our role as a parent, our role as a spouse. We have all these roles, work, neighbor, you know, taking care of parents or parents taking care of kids. We have all these roles we fill, but they all are just expressions of our greater kingdom purpose. I do all of those things the way I do because of what I believe about the kingdom of God. I'm appointed. I'm sent. Am I hearing Jesus' voice saying, go, I am sending you. This joy of kingdom purpose leads right into number two. The joy of my announcing the good news. This is what we are called to do. In verse 1, Jesus appoints these 72 disciples. In the previous chapter, you can see how he sent out the first 12, the first trial run of what this ministry of taking the gospel to the nations would look like. Now that group has expanded, it's multiplied. 72 are sent out, but look at their commission. He sent them ahead of him into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Around this season of the year, we start thinking of the Advent, the first coming of Christ, and there was a forerunner, someone who was preparing the way. We know him as John the Baptist. Here we see that same idea unfolding. We go out and we're announcing the kingdom of God. We're announcing the good news of Jesus. We're pointing people to him. Ours is not the end goal. The end goal is not to have Christians living in the four corners of the world or in every nation of the world. That's not the end goal. The goal is that they would be there pointing people to Christ. That's the second shoe to drop, so to speak. Yes, Christians go, but why? Because you're pointing people to Christ. You have the good news. Jesus was sending them to the places he himself was about to go, and he gave them the script. We saw it in verse 9. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The good news is something's come near. God, in his mercy, has come near to do for sinners what they can't do for themselves. They can't make themselves righteous. They cannot escape the guilt of their sin. They cannot make themselves alive or demand that they be allowed to live in the presence of God's joy forever. Only God can come near and bring that to us. That's the good news. God has come near to save sinners through Christ. So point people to Jesus Christ and maybe be startled by the joy that comes when you just share good news. Jesus said, I'm sending you out to all these places to get them ready for me. I'm the focus of attention. Tell them about me. 
because God through me is coming near to save. It's the joy of my announcing the good news. Number three is going to make us think a little extra here. The joy of my sharing in Christ's rejection. What is this joy that they returned with? What is the joy that Christ steered them to? In part, it was the joy of sharing in Christ's rejection. Verse 3, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Who would do that, right? Does that sound right or good? Well, remember the articulate commission in Matthew 28. Look, or lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not going alone. The good shepherd is still there. Like the shepherd we know well, David, a a stone-slinging, staff-wielding, bear and lion-defeating shepherd. So you're fine. Yes, you're being sent out as lambs among wolves, but you're just fine. You will be okay. You will have the opportunity to share in Christ's rejection, beginning in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It wouldn't take much if you walked around the property to maybe check out where we're going to add parking spaces. You're going to get some dust on your clean shoes. And this wiping off the dust against them was this idea of you could swipe across your foot and see that dust on your hand. And that would condemn these people. It would be held against them in that day of judgment. It would be, remember? Remember when the message came near? How beautiful are the feet of them that bring the gospel? Remember when the message came near and you didn't need it? You were too busy for it. I'm fine without that religious stuff. It was right there, and you said, no thanks. It'll be an indictment against you. You'll be rejected, Jesus is telling these disciples. When they do not receive you. Now, that sounds passive, right? You announce your gospel, and they won't receive it. Sounds passive, and frankly, it sounds harmless. But the reality is, of not being received is often active and quite violent. You read through the book of Acts, and it's not long before Stephen, who is announcing the good news, is being stoned. The church is being persecuted and scattered. And from that point on, the history of the church has been one of constant persecution in some part of the world, always. Jesus would later tell his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as their own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Boy, kind of sounds like not a lot of joy, right? I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. The world's going to hate you. They're going to reject. They're not going to receive. 
How is rejection a source of joy? Be another whole study, but let me at least point you to the arguments of scriptures. Paul would write in Philippians 3 that in the loss or the rejection or the suffering, his great passion was that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering. Paul longed for the life of Christ to be so stamped on his life that not only would he preach the gospel like Christ did with boldness and clarity and compassion, but he would also suffer as Christ did. That he would know Christ more through suffering. How is rejection a source of joy? Well, Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're happy. You will know joy. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If you had asked me in my 20s if this would be the the way of American Christianity, I probably would have thought no. We are the moral majority. The church is honored, it's respected, it's esteemed. The government from its earliest founding days had always so esteemed the value of the church that they decided, you know, let's give them tax exemptions. And, And pastors are so valuable to the needs of the community, let's give them a housing allowance that's untaxed. Let's give them benefits and perks because we think this is a good thing for our society. Now, 30 years later, we're starting to get a better understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. When men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you, even though it's not true, because of the name of Christ. What does Jesus say when that happens? Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. My friends, do not be discouraged by the unbelievers you know that don't seem to care about the Christian faith. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged by their rejection, by telling you to back off, by telling you to shut up. Don't bring that to our family reunion anymore. Don't talk about that stuff. I don't care what you think. Some of you have heard this stuff, if not to your face, on the Facebook posts. You've been blocked and dropped because they don't want to hear what you have to say about this. But take heart. You are not, or you are an evangelist. You are an evangelist, not only when someone is converted, but you are an evangelist anytime you share the good news. Evangelism is not defined by the result, by the outcome. It is defined by its essence, its action, its heralding, its announcing the good news. So you may be rejected, but believe what Jesus said. Your reward in heaven is great. When you witness to the truth of what Jesus has done, and some people not only don't care, but they attack you for it. A fourth description of this joy 
It is the joy of my fresh experience of faith. Verses four through eight, we see things like, don't take any supplies with you. I'm sending you out. The 72, they went two by two, so they must have gone all these different paths and back roads and all these different towns. And he's telling them, don't take any money with you, any extra clothes and shoes, don't take any food, just go. It's as if he was like forcing them into this practicum, this exercise of seek first the kingdom of God and all that stuff you need will be added to you. It was like a little test run. So don't take anything with you. Go with one thing in mind, sharing the good news and have faith that God will provide. Announce the message, whether it's received or not, and just watch how God provides through the generosity of his people. He was forcing them into this this little miniature exercise of faith. And if you ever have an ant farm, you know, you kind of take nature and you shrink it down into this little glass window. It's not fake. It's not artificial. They're real ants and they're really doing ant work and living and existing. But it's just kind of shrunk down in this little study. Well, our passage is like taking... The big idea, the gospel is going to go to the whole world. It is not only for the Jews. And Jesus is showing it to them like it's an ant farm. You're going to taste a little bit of what it's like in the massive ant colonies underground. You're going to see a little piece of it. You're going to taste what it's like to live by faith, to to focus first and foremost on the kingdom and trust that God will provide. The joy of my fresh experience of faith. Look at verse 11. After saying, don't take anything with you, some are going to believe, some are going to reject. In verse 11, he says this, Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's what they're to announce to these cities that reject, because that's what they believe. They know something. Know this. The kingdom of God has come near. That's what they're resting in. It's faith. No matter what, whether you're received or rejected, believe what God has said. You are sent with the good news. Believe God's words and serve God's kingdom. Perhaps we need to reunite faith with sharing the gospel. What would it look like for the just to live by faith in going to Walmart? What would it look like to have in mind, what if I'm trusting God for the words to say to someone I'm going to meet at Walmart? You say, I don't have time for that. I got to get home, fix dinner. I'm only stopping there real quick. I know, but that's why we need this element of faith. What if sharing the gospel is really supposed to be a part of all of life, and at any given moment, we could be asked to engage in that conversation. Do you believe that the gospel can change a life, or have you given up on some people? You see how they're so gripped by this world's view of gender or sexuality, how they're so given over to a sinful lifestyle. 
you see how they've abandoned their family and live only for money, and, and you just think they're too far gone. We need to pull faith back into this conversation of giving the gospel. That we're going simply believing that the gospel really works. Faith. Do we need a fresh experience of faith when it comes to sharing the gospel? Look at verses 5 and 6 now. To see the joy of my encounter with other believers. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. He sent them out and he's preparing them for an experience that maybe some of you have had. Where you're in the public Place and you encounter another Christian, and that comes up only through certain conversations, you start to pick up on something, the way they said that, the way they uh, mentioned something, and, and you're, you're thinking they might be a believer. Have you ever had somebody offer you a gospel track? I think it's probably happened to me maybe at the state fair, maybe some other time. There have been people that came to our house. They came from um, First Bible Baptist Church right there across from Blue Spring South. They were doing some event, and they came through our neighborhood and were inviting kids. You know, once they start talking, you're thinking, okay, who are these people? How am I going to get away from them? Hand me something, and then I'm looking at it, and I'm like, okay, that looks pretty good, actually. Like, they might be on the right team. Uh, that's the experience that Jesus is talking about here. Just Go. And announce the peace of God. And if they welcome that, if that resonates with them, then you found your place and just stay there and eat the meals with them And as the story unfolds. But what Jesus is talking about here is a, a certain joy that comes in recognizing we're not alone in this. Grace Bible isn't the only lighthouse on the rocky shores of Kansas City. There's all kinds of other places and people doing God's work, and we might encounter them out there if we are talking about the grace of God in our lives. If we're talking about God's been good or he's been faithful, we might encounter that it resonates with somebody in the workplace or that delivery man at your house or the guy working on your AC, and you might find that connection that is there only because of faith in Christ. But if we're never talking about God, if we're never talking about good news, the hope that we have, the blessings from our God, we're never letting anything sound so that it can resound from somebody else. And eventually we isolate ourselves and think we're the only ones doing anything for the kingdom of God, when in reality we come and here in our closed doors we think we're really getting the job done. Boy, did we ever worship great this morning. But the other reality is when we leave this place, we never say boo about the gospel. So we never know who's out there. We don't know that we're actually lighting up this whole city with gospel lights. Let's share the gospel and along the way find the joy that comes when we encounter other believers. Number six, the joy of my experience of power. You've been asked to manage 
the power of the gospel. Romans 1, we saw it again there in our affirmation of faith. We're not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So you're, you're wielding this power, right? Some of you like to shoot guns. Well, you learn some basic rules about safety because you can't just be throwing those things around or letting them rattle around in the back of your trunk or, you know, stuffing it into your waistband like you're a tough guy and pulling it out carelessly. No, there, there's power there. There's the power of life and death in those bullets. Be careful. When you teach your kids to drive, more and more it's becoming a challenge because they think it's pretty cool to race around on the video game and drive over shopping carts, light poles, crash into police cars, and everything else you do in these games. Then you got to convince them when they're behind the wheel, no, wait a minute, like, there's a lot of power here. Mass times velocity does something in science. So let's be careful. We're being asked to wield this power. And in so doing, Jesus builds into this little experimental trial run an exercise of power. Verse 9. Heal the sick in that town that you're in and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Heal the sick and say, the kingdom of God has come. In other words, heal the sick of their physical problems and then tell them Jesus has come to bring a healing that is much broader in its scope. It's the healing for sin. So take the physical healing, and let it serve as an illustration of your message, the healing that is found in Jesus Christ. The healing of the body becomes a confirmation of the message for the healing of the soul. This would be true on into the book of Acts, where multiple times we're told that the apostles' message is confirmed by these signs and wonders. We get into Romans, into 2 Corinthians, into Hebrews, and they all tell us, that these miraculous signs were given to confirm this message. It's really true. Jesus can save you from your sin. There's joy in this power. Some of the sickness apparently that they were dealing with was demonic in nature because when they returned, it says they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're amazed by their power over spiritual darkness. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't think this is Satan's fall from heaven that we think of when he rebels in pride. I would suggest to you that Jesus is speaking of the binding of Satan. This is the acknowledgement of his unfolding yet certain defeat The disciples aren't told to wait for something. Jesus is saying it's happening now. You are going into enemy territory and claiming that ground. Satan's power is not absolute. His kingdom cannot withstand the advance of God's kingdom. Jesus said in Mark 3, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then... Indeed, he may plunder the house. 
You read of the binding of Satan in Revelation, and you don't need to wait for some millennial kingdom. You need to understand that Satan has been bound. He's, he's cowering in this onslaught of the gospel that's reaching the nations. Bind the strong man and you can plunder his house. Jesus is saying, of course you had power over the demons. Satan hates this. We've bound him and now you're plundering his captives that are taken by his will. Jesus saying, yes, rejoice in that. Rejoice. But more than that, he says, rejoice in your eternal security. That's number seven, the joy of my eternal security. Yes, I rejoice that First John says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus says, okay, I hear what you're saying. They returned and said, we're amazed that we have power over the demons. And the language of Jesus in verse 20 is this, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So let me ask you, was he telling them they were sinfully wrong for rejoicing in their power over demons? Don't do that, but do this. I'd submit to you, this is, this is comparative in nature. Jesus isn't denying the joy and the excitement of their success in seeing believers. He's not saying that's a bad thing. Don't rejoice in your power over the demons. He's just saying that you're only scratching the surface. You're not getting to the true heart of the joy. The greatest joy is not that God rules over evil. That's what the disciples are amazed by. God is ruling over evil. We have this power, God's power over evil. No, the greatest joy is not that God rules over evil. No, Jesus says, the ultimate joy is in knowing, in experiencing that God rules over the evil of my heart. Yes, God rules over evil, but that has always been true and it will always be true. The real source of joy is in the fact that he rules over your evil heart. That the gospel has worked in you. That God's mercy has been evident to you and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Paul would write in Philippians 4 of his companions, those who labored side by side with him in the gospel ministry, And he names some of them with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Just like the disciples in our story, Paul was doing his ministry as well. And he's saying, I'm doing it with these people. And our joy is found in the fact that our names are written in God's book. Revelation 20 tells us that if you're not found written in that book, you don't go to heaven. You're eternally judged. So this is important. Jesus is getting to the heart of the gospel as it relates to every individual person. Do you have faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you, are you, are you? Because what matters is your name written in the book of life. And if it's there, 
then God has conquered your evil heart and joy has begun for you. We find joy in sharing the good news that God can turn his enemies into his own children who are forever secure. Or as Isaiah says, whose names are engraved in the palms of his hands. Therein lies your joy. Go this week and give the gospel and rejoice in in that obedience. Rejoice in your success in proclaiming Christ. But let that joy be funneled all the way down to its true source. God in his mercy has conquered my evil heart. His kingdom has come. It's drawn near. It's drawn near to me. And it's drawn near to you who are believers in Jesus. Heavenly Father, may the words that we say and the way that we live this week point sinners to the saving power of Jesus Christ. Make us faithful witnesses, bold witnesses, clear witnesses for the glory of your name. We pray in the name of this Jesus who has saved us and keeps us faithful. Amen.